0: I love that song because it conveys the disposition of a heart that has come to understand, has come to experience, at least to some degree, the transformative power of God's holy word. That is the theme of this morning's message, and it is based on James chapter 1, verses 21 to 27. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to that text, if you would, please. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 950. This sermon is the first of a three-part series we're doing on our church's vision statement. The vision of Webster Bible Church is to embrace God's truth, enjoy His people, and extend His glory. This sums up the focus of webster bible church and the forward progress that we will experience as we look to the lord in all things and that really is the key one of the great promises of scripture is that god will meet us where we are and take us to where he wants us to be that is the transformative power of god's holy word but because this has been our vision statement for the last 11 years I thought it was time for a vision checkup. A few years ago, I went to our optometrist because I was thinking that in addition to reading glasses, I might need prescription glasses. So I, I went to the optometrist, and he performed some of the routine exams. He, he checked my pupils. He had me read the eye chart, did a few other things. And then when, the, um, when he was through, he said, you're fine. And I said, really? I was surprised to hear him say, I said, because when I close my right eye, my vision gets blurry. And he said, well, then don't close your right eye. (laughs) And I felt really dumb at the moment, but it was a pretty simple solution, wasn't it? And I would submit to you that the same is true spiritually. If we want to truly grasp the heights that God has for us, The God who has revealed himself to us, we have to go to the great physician and pray as the psalmist did, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. He's not talking about physical eyesight, he's talking about spiritual insight. And the same kind of language appears in the New Testament. Would you consider Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus, where he said, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Then he says, I pray for you constantly that God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give you wisdom to see clearly, to see clearly that you would really understand who Christ is and all that he has done for us. Paul says, I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you would see something of the incredible future that God has prepared for us. And this is my prayer for you as the congregation of Webster Bible Church. But the point of today's message is, is that you too bear a responsibility in that regard. To see clearly, you must listen carefully. Let me say that again. If you want spiritual insight to see clearly, you have to listen carefully to the word of God and not just listen carefully, you must live accordingly. And that's really what the whole epistle of James in the New Testament is about. And that's why we emphasize in the first part of our vision statement, embrace God's truth. That's where it all begins. When the famous missionary, David Livingston, began his trek across Africa, it is said that he began with 73 books. And remember, in that day, they were a lot bigger than they they are in our day. But he had 73 books in three different packs, weighing a total of 180 pounds. Well, you could imagine that after a few hundred miles into his journey, the books became way too burdensome. So he began unloading some of them, and and as he continued his journey, he continued to um, uh, delete a lot of those books. He continued to unload them. He, He continued to diminish his library, so to speak, until he had only one book left. Can you guess what it was? His Bible. Because he knew that was the one book he could not do without. And the same is true of us. Moses told the Israelites, It is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. Do we really believe that? That God's word is our very life, and that apart from God's word, we have no life? If you look at James chapter 1, our text is verses 21 to 27, but in verse 18, James says that God, by his own choice, gave us birth by the word of truth. God of his own will, by his own choice, gave us birth by the word of truth. You compare that to what Paul says in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the word of truth is the word of Christ because Jesus Christ is the word of God incarnate. Jesus is the word made flesh. So much so that Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the truth. I am the truth. And that's why Peter begins his epistle on a note of praise saying this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is undying, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through faith, you are being protected by God's power for the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the end of time. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Just as we did not bring about our own physical birth, we did not decide to be born. Even so, we did not bring about our spiritual birth. We did not decide to be born again. We were not the ultimate cause of that. God was. The Bible says that God, by his choice, brought us forth. He gave us birth by the word of truth. God, by his grace, Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, made us alive in Christ. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, Peter says... Like newborn babies crave the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow up in the salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, instead of continuing the the old sinful habits and practices that characterize us when we were dead in trespasses and sins, now that we have new life in Christ, even if we're brand new believers, babies, we're to crave the pure milk of the word. And it doesn't mean that when you get older in Christ, you no longer crave it. Every believer is to crave the pure milk of God's word the way a newborn baby craves the milk of his or her mother. Christians are to crave what nourishes spiritual growth for ourselves and for others. That's essentially what the letter of James is about. Getting believers to consistently live out the faith that they proclaim. And that's why our subject for this morning is The Transformative Power of God's Holy Word. James 1, verses 21 to 27. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read these verses. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgetting what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, this one will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word as we allow his word to be planted deep in us. As you can see from these verses, the Christian life is intensely practical. God's word is meant to transform us, not simply inform us. That really is the central port of this, uh, point of this point of the sermon. God's word is not meant to is meant to transform us, not just inform us. With that in mind, look at what James tells us to do. Now, I'm going to use a little bit of a colloquial language here just to help with our memory. Number one, he says, in essence, take out the trash. (laughs) Take out the trash. Look at the first part of verse 21. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, the therefore points back to what James says in the previous two verses. James 1, verses 19 to 20. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. We know from experience, whether we're on the giving end or the receiving end, that unchecked anger, sinful anger, is often accompanied by hurtful words, And in some cases, even harmful actions. James' point is that anger only produces more sin, not the righteousness that God desires. And that's why James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I want to show you, as I've already read from a few different epistles at the outset of the sermon, that the apostolic witness is consistent throughout the New Testament scriptures. Peter employs this same kind of language. Right before telling us to crave the pure milk of the word that we may grow with respect to our salvation, Peter says right before that, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Likewise, the apostle Paul in Colossians 3.8, same kind of language. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language out of your mouth. Whereas Peter and Paul list specific sins, such as filthy language, James lumps them all together and says, put away all filthiness. The term filthiness includes every form of impurity and the word all indicates the need to get rid of every single bit of it. Zero tolerance. We have many young parents here with babies. Parents, when you change your baby's diaper, do you simply take off their dirty diaper and get rid of it and you're done? No, that's actually just the beginning of the cleaning process. Once the dirty diaper is removed, you take a wet wipe or a washcloth, and you get in between the crevices of all that cute baby fat on their thighs and whatever, and you wipe away every trace of filth. At least you will if you truly care about your baby and don't want him or her to become contaminated with bacteria. You remove every trace of filth from your baby's body and then you put the wet wipe, uh, uh, the dirty diaper and whatever else is filthy in the trash. And that's what God wants us to do with every trace of sin in our life. Every trace of sin, every little bit of it is vile to God and it is harmful to us and it is harmful to the people around us. And that's what James means by the next phrase. He says, get rid of all filthiness and all rampant wickedness. Your translation may say overflow of wickedness. That's the idea that sin has a way of spilling over our lives into the lives of those around us. A great example of this is in Hebrews 12, 15, where he says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, defiling many. We know how bitterness can work through our words, our attitudes, our actions. We're not the only ones that get poisoned by it. Everyone that comes within contact of us gets poisoned by bitterness. And that's just one example of how sin contaminates not only us individually, but people around us. And so in this first point, take out the trash, I want to ask you, how diligent are you in dealing with sin in your life? Do you have a growing hatred of sin? A growing intolerance for sin? Matched with and because of a growing love for Jesus Christ. Do you grieve over your sin? Now, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the Holy Spirit grieves over our sin. Do you grieve over your sin? Do you ask the Spirit of God to, to search you? To show you what sins are still lingering in your life. Sins that need to be stripped away and thrown into the trash. That's how David prayed. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. You know, just as babies can't clean themselves, they need their parents' help to get clean. The same is true of us spiritually. And we have this promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, and the word confess is homologeo. It means to say the same thing, to agree with God, to call sin what God calls it instead of making excuses. If we confess our sins, listen, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just to do this. Because he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again in power and victory so that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that takes up residence in your life to give you the power to put away every trace of sin. Now that's a battle that we will continue every day of our lives until we're home with the Lord. The Bible says if we think we've reached a point where we say we have no sin, he says, well, you are uh, still a sinner because you just lied. (laughs) If we say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in us. So we don't want to say that. But we do want to say this. Uh, 1 John 3 says that uh, uh, we are not yet like the Lord. But when we see him... We will be like him because we will see him as he is. And then he says this, everyone who has this hope in him, this, this confident expectation that we will be like Christ when he returns in glory. Everyone who has this hope in him does what? He purifies himself even as Christ is pure. In other words, we don't take the attitude, well, when Jesus comes back, I'll be perfect, so why bother working at it now? That shows that you don't really know who Christ is. And you don't really appreciate what Christ has done for sinners. Because if we truly love Christ, we will learn Christ and we will want to live like Christ. That is the desire of those who are truly followers of Christ. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness scripture says ask and you will receive have you asked god to do this in your life to show you sins that you're harboring maybe blind spots that maybe other people can see but we can't but god certainly sees are you remembering to take out the trash that's a common question in our health did you remember to take out the trash If you leave trash lying around, it's going to stink up the house. Last night, my wife gave me an illustration without even realizing it. After dinner, she said, honey, can you take up the trash? It stinks. And I opened the trash, and I saw that there was only a little bit in there. And you know what my thing is like? It's only a fourth full. Do we really need to take it out? Yes, and I did. But the idea is this, we don't wait till we have a full bag and then take it out. At least not spiritually. When we see that there's something in our life that stinks in the nostrils of God, it should be vile to us and ought to be put away as soon as we can do that. If you leave it lying around, it's going to stink up the house, and the same is true of the household of faith, the church of God. And here's the other thing. In your household, uh, taking out the trash may be assigned to a specific person, but in God's house, taking out the trash is every Christian's responsibility. And it's not something we do just once a week, like on Sunday mornings. It is something that we do diligently every day of our lives and with the help of God every moment of every day. To experience the transformative power of God's word in your life, you must put away all sins. You must take out the trash. Number two, take in the truth. Take out the trash is the first step, but then take in the truth. Therefore, put away all filthiness, I'm in verse 21, and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Once again, this is, this is consistent teaching throughout the New Testament. Peter follows the same sequence. After telling us to put away all sorts of sins, he says, Like newborn babies crave the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you remember the words we sang literally moments ago, just before the sermon began? Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Were you thinking about those words as you sang that song? James refers to the truth of scripture As the implanted word. That is to say, that the people to whom he was writing had already been given the message of salvation. It had already been planted in them, so to speak. But if a plant is not properly tended to, it will die. Jesus gave a very similar illustration from nature in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. If you were to read that parable, you would see that the seed of God's word is extravagantly sown. It's extravagantly sown, but most of the soils on which it fell were not receptive. The seed is extravagantly sown, but most of the soils, three quarters of them in the parable, were not receptive. And that's the danger, in essence, James is warning us about here. People who sit regularly listening to the word of God. This warning is for people like us. Those who fear God's or hear God's word but neglect it will die a spiritual death. And the problem is not a lack in the power of the word, it the problem is a lack of reception in the heart. James says, That we are to receive the word with meekness, with humility. The Greek term there is prautes, and it speaks of a mild disposition, a gentle spirit. In other words, I'm not up in arms like if I hear something from God's word I don't like. The Bible says that God's word is living and active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And getting pierced is not fun. And so our tendency to be to get up our defenses and start making excuses or simply just not listen to the word, tune out the message that we're hearing because we don't like it. James says, don't do that. Receive the word with meekness, with a gentle spirit, with a humble spirit. The Greek scholar W.E. Vine describes this Term prautes, gentleness or meekness, humility, as that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. See what he's saying? Lord, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, no discipline at the time is pleasant, but what? Painful. But afterwards, Afterwards, it produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. You've got to let God's truth train you instead of just blocking it out, ignoring it, rejecting it. We are to receive with humility knowing that what God says is for our good. And it may not always be pleasant, sometimes it's painful, but man, does it yield good results if we will receive it with humility, if we will take it to heart. Notice James says we're to do this because this implanted word is able to save your soul. There's a lot of things in life that might give you benefit. Nothing gives you this kind of benefit but the word of God. It is able, listen, to save your soul. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary points out that the verb to save implies not merely the salvation of the soul, but also the restoration of life. To save means to make a person whole and complete in every respect. I think there's a a lot of carryover from the Hebrew word shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of everything that is good and wholesome and right, the way that life is meant to be. And isn't that what David declared in Psalm 19, the passage that Peter and Hannah read earlier? He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So God's word listening to it, receiving it, not only spares us from eternal damnation, but it also saves us from a lot of needless damage in this life. You know, when we first trusted Christ as our Savior, we humbly acknowledged our need for God's grace. James says, we need such humility every time we approach God's word. That is, if we want to truly benefit from its teaching, we come to God's Word humbly, acknowledging our need for His grace. So, to experience the transformative power of God's Word, we must take out the trash, we must take in the truth. But there's one more thing we must do, James says, and that is take on the traits. Take on the traits. James goes on to say in verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The idea is there that you're fooling yourselves. You, you think because you're hearing God's word, you're a growing Christian, and you're mature, and you're knowledgeable, and all that. James says, no. Nah. If you're simply a spiritual sponge that doesn't allow your life to be squeezed by the Lord so that you, the, the truth is oozing out of your life and bringing benefit because you're a doer of the word, if it just goes one ear and out the other, or it's just, uh, you know, Paul says in Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you're just using the word of God to to puff yourself up and to, to say impressive things or whatever, to show people how much you know, you're only fooling yourself. You're only fooling yourself. You're self-deceived. James' point is that a proper preparation for the word And a humble reception of the word is to be followed by a prompt obedience to the word. Let me say that again. A proper preparation for the word, right? Putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then a proper reception of the word, taking in the truth is to be followed by prompt obedience to the Word. In other words, we're we're taking on the traits, uh, taking on the characteristics that God expects His people to have. The truth of Scripture is to characterize our lives. I think of Paul's words in Ephesians 4, when he talks about the church, and, and, and he says that in, in verse 15, I think it is, he talks about us speaking the truth in love. And that's hard to translate in English. What Paul is actually saying is, he's using the word truth as a verb. He says that we're truthing in love. Our lives are to be characterized by the truth of God's word. If you truly embrace God's truth, meaning that you love it, then you'll live it. If you love it, you'll live it. It's to characterize our lives in Some may say, well, yeah, isn't that obvious? Well, yes, it is obvious. But just because something is obvious doesn't mean that it always occurs. Again, people think they're good Christians because they consistently go to church and hear God's word. But James says, if you hear the word but don't do it, you're self-deceived. And then he uses another everyday illustration to, uh, to prove his point. Another everyday occurrence to illustrate his point. I'm going to read this in a slightly modernized translation. Verses 23 to 25, he says, For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing so. want to ask you a question. And this time I do want you to raise your hands. How many of you, at some point before you entered church this morning, looked into a mirror? I don't see any hand not raised. And if you didn't look into a mirror, we could probably tell. <laughs> when you look in the mirror, and it in essence says to you, comb your hair, brush your teeth, blow your nose, (laughs) shave your face. We do something about it, don't we? Otherwise, why look in the mirror in the first place? And that's the, the logic that is to be applied when it comes to Scripture. If you want to benefit from it, it's not simply a matter of looking into it. It's not simply a matter of hearing God's word. It's not simply a matter of of seeing it before you. You have to respond to it appropriately. When God's word says, this is out of line in your life, the understanding, the, the, the response of the Christian ought to be, well, the whole reason I'm looking at God's word so that I can, by the help of the Spirit, make the necessary adjustments so that by God's grace, I can look more like Jesus Christ. In verses 26 to 27, James spells out the practical implications of this principle. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. As I thought through this, I wrote down that true godliness reveals itself in our conversation as we control our tongues. Through our compassion as we care for those in need, and through our commitment as we cling to Christ and refuse to allow the world to corrupt us. And that can only happen by the power of God in our life. You see, true godliness, genuine religion as it were, is both internal and external because it permeates every aspect of our lives. And God's word was never intended to do less. God's word is meant to transform us, not just inform us. Some time ago, I was cleaning out the drawers of my desk. And in the back of one drawer, I found a pocket-sized Gideon Bible. I opened it up and found some introductory statements that I had not read in a long while. And they grit me. They reminded me of how precious and how powerful God's word is. The majestic treasure I hold in my hand when I read it and why I should embrace it. I'd like to close by reading these solemn words to you. And this is from the Gideon Bible I had in my drawer. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven is open, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Let us pray. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our heart to fear your name. We give thanks to you, O Lord our God, with our whole heart, and we will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward us. You have delivered our souls from the deepest hell. Thank you, gracious Almighty Father, for revealing yourself, your Son, and your Holy Spirit to us through your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to love it, and to live it for our good in your glory. Amen.